Welcome to Exit the Red Race, the podcast for high performers who want to enter the next level in business and in life with more focus, more energy, clarity, and freedom. We don't do dusty book wisdom or guru quotes. It's all about real, extraordinary experiences and the raw lessons from daily life. He asks you the questions that no one else does. Sometimes tough, sometimes in your face, but always with one goal, challenging you to live your most legendary life. Here's your host, Daniel Kluke. Exit the Red Race. So today I'm talking with Denise Bailey. For the last 20 years, she is a firefighter in San Francisco. So she has seen, experienced it all. And we're going to talk about trust and confidence in yourself, but also in your teammates and the relationship with your teammates, but also trust and confidence in your gear. We're going to talk about death, but also the transition between being on the job, full of adrenaline and the transition into everyday life. Enjoy. So today I have here Denise Bailey from San Francisco, if I'm correct, still there, right, uh, Denise? I met with her in abroad. Uh, she was one of my students during cold exposure, breathing, climbing mountains. But when we were talking over there in nature, she shared wonderful stories because Denise is for almost a firefighter in San Francisco. And I invited uh, Denise to be on the call with me today to talk about things like courage, trust, brotherhood, choosing when it really matters, how to deal with fear, us, and expectations. You go into a fire, you go into something that is going on, expectations come up, how do you deal with that? But also, how will you take care of yourself going through all those things? So, Denise, I'm delighted here have you anything to add to that introduction i just gave you oh thank you for that introduction and you know probably i'll add things along the way but i mean that sounds like a lot to talk about uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm ready to take a bite of your apple for sure yeah yeah and uh, i already shared with you it's an open conversation that we're just going to share yes. with each other but i'm we're really interested in you and yeah being such a long time in your fighting and I could almost say I think you've seen it all then right and there's probably not a lot of things you didn't see or is it still some always new things coming up in your line of work well when we sit around and we table talk at dinner at the fire guys will come up with stories and I think gosh it's been you know I've been in the fire department over 20 years and I never went to that call you know and People have heard about it in the news probably, but years ago, uh, a tiger killed a man at the zoo, a young man at the zoo. Yeah. You know, a, a dog attacked a woman and it was, you know, like a horror scene in a hallway and killed the woman, you know, like these things happen, but I didn't happen to be at that call, but we, we sit around the dinner table. So if I haven't been to it, then I've talked about it with my brotherhood at, at dinner while reading dinner. We talk about all this stuff. And yeah, I would say that if I haven't seen it all, 
I've trained for it all. Yeah. And, and we discussed a little bit before for this call, and uh, you already mentioned uh, the word brotherhood. And we go yes. into yeah. a lot of the experience you went through and all those topics I just shared. Uh, but what I just that the foundational part that in a way allows you to do what you do is that brotherhood with other people, right? And at the, the firehouse, living together, yeah. working together. Yes. It's about how, yeah, what did that brings you? Mostly, what does it bring you? So I go to the firehouse and we share the, all of the responsibilities of a home. So it's like you're at work, you're with your sisters and brothers, and somebody has to cook, you have to do dishes, you know, you have to set the table and clean the bathrooms and make your bed and, you know, wash the fire engine and go to a, do a drill together, you know, where you practice firefighting. And then and 24 hours minimum yeah. with, uh, with these uh, individuals who are very different, who don't all have the same beliefs. We don't, we're not all in the same political party. We don't all share the same religion. Uh, contextually, we some have kids, some don't. So we all just kind of come together and we become enmeshed. Yeah. And we call it a brotherhood. And it's it's a brotherhood. When that call comes in, nobody waits. No. You are out of your seat. Whatever you're doing ceases. And you immediately respond. And you go to work. Yeah. And that happened like I don't get up and leave the room and you stay, you know, we get up together and it's like a foot race to the rig, you know? Yeah. And that is what makes it a brotherhood because you can just imagine if you had kids and you, and you rang the dinner bell, how they'd all fight to get to the table and, you know, struggle to be the first one to get the bread or the piece of meat they want. And that's how we go at our jobs at the calls is we are Sounds terrible. And, you know, in this context, you have to understand I'm talking about what gives me the will to go to this fire or yeah. on this call is we we hope it's a working fire. You know, we're like we're going to, you know, yeah. we're thinking if it's a sick person, you know, we're not as excited about it, but we are there to help. If it's a choking kid, we're we're going to push the envelope of speed and safety driving to get there as possibly can. It's that bustling where you're just elbowing everybody out of the way because you want to be the first one to put water on the fire. Yeah. And what I hear you say, and that brotherhood, and that when I hear you talk about that are listening to this or watching this, probably not a lot of outside people will ever understand the bond that you have together right right i mean i do think it's unique yeah, yeah because you share hardship beauty together you share all those things together and what i also say hear you say is that it's such a mashup of people but when the call comes in you're all rushing out and yes maybe with different expectations but Look at that whole mashup of people, that brotherhood that you live with. What is the, let's say, the generic set of values that you 
in a way, all being activated by that. The moment that the bell comes in or something triggers you, that you all rise. Common ground that you share. Well, how would you describe it? Are there some words that you could add to that? I think my kind of my mantra has always been, I'm here to help. And somebody told me early on in my, when I was developing who I was as a firefighter, they said, you can't take responsibility for everyone you save. Because if you do, then you have to take responsibility for everyone you don't save. Mm. And, and so I kind of came up with a mantra early on where I'm here to help. So we kind of all have that thing that propels us and gives us that state of readiness and excitement. And probably our different values that come up for different people. But experientially, I would say that as a cohort, as a brotherhood, we're all, we're a team. It's like we're going out to win a gold medal. It's like... Uh, a sporting event as much as it is a job. It's uh, we're going to go out there and we're going to give it our all kind of a thing. And the coaching aspect of it is we have a a lieutenant or a boss say, go do this, bring that tool, you know, follow this direction. And we have to do it without questioning. Yeah. So, so So what I hear you say for you personally is it's like helping people and the whole cohort of people it's like succeeding rising up together when the when the call uh, comes in and also what triggered me just now is what you said is responsibility responsibility what is and what isn't so does that mean that through the years of being a fighter fire firefighting seeing all those things denise that you had to learn what the yeah, let's say the boundaries are that your control and what is outside of your control. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, it kind of naturally brings me kind of to talking to wanting to talk about like trust and, and the idea that I have to implicitly the people that I work with. Yeah. And all of us have our responsibilities. You know, there's someone who's on the fire engine whose job and sole responsibility is to get me water because I'm, I have the hose and, and I, I need water. You know, I'm going to run directly to where the fire is. It's unique to San Francisco. So fire is fought differently everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. but unique to San Francisco, you know, there's on the postcards of the houses that are stacked mm-hmm. right next to each other. Beautiful, right down a hillside, you yeah. know, and the idea is that when we fight fire in San Francisco, we are we want to put it out and we air to the room and contents. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't stop outside and try to get a feel for what's going on. We break the door down mm-hmm. and we go directly to where fire. And that's where we're going to be until it's put out the conditions and, and uh, what we deal with are intense. I can remember going into my first fire and, you know, it's kind of, you just watch movies and it's Hollywood. You go in and you're standing up with this hose because it's heavy. And I, 
I'm forced, I'm dragging this behind me and I'm, I'm right there. And all of a sudden I'm on my knees and then I'm laying on the floor because it's so hot mm. and I'm wearing all giant oven mitt. You know, you've seen the coats and the turnout pants and the helmet and the hoods and the mask, and I've got it all on and I'm feeling like I could catch fire and that I'm trusting my equipment. I'm trained. I do, I do without thinking. Yeah. Some of the things your body tells you to do for self-preservation, it's hot, get down. It's, hot, it's still hot, get down further. I've laid on the floor on my belly, you know, shooting, you know, shooting water out of fire. And, yeah. and if that guy outside wasn't doing his part of his responsibility, if he wasn't doing his job to get me water, I'd be backing out of that and that fire would be getting bigger. Mm -hmm. So what I and, hear you say, Denise, is that, that when it comes to trust, and we will talk about courage in a second, but trust is in a way multi-layered for you because you, uh, in the person or let's say the rest of your team, you have trust in your equipment, you have trust in your training, you've trust in your natural state of being that are, that are a lot of, that's a whole stack of trust in a way also embrace to do what you do, right? Yes, yeah. Implicitly trust without questioning because I looked at my gear that morning. I know it's good. I looked at the hose. We do hose testing. I know the hose is good. Sometimes do things happen? Coals, things that are burning in the air fall down on you. And all of a sudden, you know, something burns your neck and you're like, oh, that get through, you know, well, it just burned a hole through your gear, you know, or maybe there's uh, coals that are, that you're crawling through that are burning their way through your, your outfit. But when that stuff happens, you start to say, I got to back up a little bit, or mm -hmm. I got to deal with this situation a little bit, but I might just spray the floor where I'm laying and lay back down again and keep fighting that fire. But that trust, you can't slow down. If you slow down, somebody's going to get hurt. And, and the trust part, because a lot of people, hey, you're a fighter fighter and you have that wonderful stack of trust that you've developed within yourself, but every human being in certain areas of life is missing trust. So I think you're a beautiful example in how you can, uh, you probably have lessons around how to develop trust because first of all, one of the lessons that you can take away from it, not only for being in firefighting, but that in a way you've created processes for yourself with the drills you do to make, let's say a skill set automatic. So when shit hits the fan, so we're saying that you react. Secondly, yeah. checking your gear is make it happen. But I can still imagine that the first few times or maybe the first few years that you went out, that that trust within yourself still needed to be matured or developed. What was your approach for that? <laughs> is of course how it really happened uh, overall. We talked a little bit personally about how, you know, you have to know what your superpower is. Yeah. I'm a person who thinks about things kind of ADD is ADD might hinder some people, 
but it helps me because I'm going to ruminate and think about things. And if it takes me three minutes to respond to an emergency, spending three minutes ruminating on all the worst case scenarios that I can run in three minutes. Mm. So if I see this, I, I know I got this. I'm going to make sure I bring the forcible entry tools if I'm responsible in the door. So I'm thinking about all the different ways that I break down doors. I might be thinking about what medical stuff I might want to bring based on this call because it's a child or a pregnant woman or, a, you know, like everything, depending on what the call is and what your responsibility is, is so wide and varied. So a lot of my ruminative thoughts are what I relied on initially. Minutes that I had to prepare before we actually pulled up in front of the burning building was me rehearsing, you know, in split second speed, I was just running this whole call in advance. Yeah. I'm interesting. You're tra every time you say something, I want to know more about all those <laughs> small things because what what uh, what I hear you say, and I always look for the patterns also in everyday life. So what I hear you say is in those three minutes, I'm focusing on the worst. But there is one side note to that: that a lot of people focus in their everyday life also on the negative, right? But what yes. you do, the difference is that when you go into a situation necessary, of course, to focus on the worst case scenarios. You're always looking for a solution to that worst case scenario instead of staying within that worst case scenario. And that's, of course, what more happens in everyday life. Yeah. It triggered me now to think of something. And the idea is that if I go on 10 calls a day, mm -hmm. they're not all fires. No. Okay. So it, the call says, This call is fire in the building. And we, I'm ready for a fire and the wheels are turning. And I've got all my, I put on my gear at full speed and I'm, wheels are turning on the three minutes, four minutes that it takes us to drive there. And we pull up and there's absolutely nothing happening. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is incredibly important is allow yourself to have the thoughts. Yeah. But when it's not an emergency, let this go away. Let it not be on your, you know, like as you drive away, you're, you're thinking, wow, you know, uh, what do I do with all this energy now? You know, and that adrenaline surge, you can't take that back. In hindsight, what I should have done is gone and taken a cold shower after I got back from every call, yeah. you know, those preparatory thoughts in that excitement phase isn't always really good for you. There's a price you pay for that. It's a great thing in my field to be ready for an emergency. And you want me to run into that building and put the fire out and save all of your stuff. But if I'm at home and I engage my superpower and I worry about, uh, what if I can't make my mortgage Did I leave the iron on? You know, I mean, you know, you can make yourself crazy about these things yeah. by overthinking things. And so that might be my superpower that makes me great. Mm -hmm. 
but how do you turn that off? You know, turning it off is at home is having a boundary. Yeah. Having a boundary and saying, I'm at home now. When I hear a siren, I can't, I can't, you know, is there something wrong? You know, uh, it's hard for me to think of examples about the things at home that I ruminate on are, are the silliest things, you know? I question everything because I want everything to be perfect. Yeah. And and that is because I want to be ready to deal with anything. Like, what if I fall and I break my leg? Well, now I can't go to work. What am I going to do? You know, and my whole identity and job is my life. Having your life be ruled by that fear at home, too. When you, when you have that situation and you head out and you go through that decision-making process that what I really find super fascinating or interested in is, is the fact that you focus can create a positive outcome. And I think that is something that people always can, as a lesson, can take away from it. The other thing I hear you say is, and you build up that adrenaline, your neurolog the neurology is being fully activated from there and there's nothing going on. Did you develop a strategy for yourself through the years or to let go as quickly as you can? Because I can imagine if you have that 10 times a day, you're 10 times a day. But let's say it's only five times. It's, it's a lot of energy consumption. It's a lot of you know, hormonal taxing on your system. And what, did, what is strategy you use work-wise? You know, the fire service is really only just starting to deal with this in a form. Ah, okay. So uh, it's a job where you have to be careful not to drink the Kool-Aid. What people always say, you know, thank you for your service and you're a hero. And when I would go to work and I'd get on the fire engine and we'd drive down the street, wave at you, you know, and, and women pushing strollers stop and point their kids in the stroller and say, look, there goes a fire engine, you know? And so then you're waving, you know, you're waving back and you're kind of getting the idea and the sense of self that, wow, I'm an important person or people value me and people need me and society looks to me to be their, their hero, you know, and, and fill in that. Uh, and, you have to be careful not to drink the Kool-Aid and start believing that in the, in a way that goes beyond your job, beyond yeah. that response. We're all fallible and we all only have and bring to it. And I absolutely ignored that surge of adrenaline and the toll that it might take. I ignored that for the majority of my career. I had no idea that I couldn't live alone mm. and i relied on it and used it and never knew that i should be really getting rid of it i thought it was just a great thing hindsight's 2020 you know like gosh if i knew that i'd have better knees i would have better shoulders you know my joints would be less achy right now because all that inflammatory stuff just sitting in your body tears you down yeah, and, and with the, the level you have experienced by constantly going into that activation of your neurology, your stress system, but didn't found the way them to, let's say, let go of it, you pay the price because in a way it's, it's a body 
and we're not going into the science of that today, but it accumulates. And then you say, hey, my body is literally deteriorating from that. I, yes. Of course, that was also one of the reasons probably that we met in, in Poland during that event uh, I was doing. But if you would go to your work, Denise, and you have a situation like that with all the experience that you've got, like I, I need to let go of that adrenaline. And yes, you have it at home probably also in, in some degree, but I can imagine it's not when you are at work going on yeah. the rig, going to a fire. What is it that you, let's say, where you are now in your career that you learn to let go of that, yeah, that activation of stress? So because it is, it has a physical response, it surges, it surges all my superhuman ability, you Feels know, good, eh? <laughs> it, it, it creates, it's that it brings my fight or flight up yeah. to its highest level yeah. and says that I can run fast now and I can, wrestle the you know saber-toothed tiger and win you know yeah. now at the firehouse i will train i'll go ahead and hit the gym at the firehouse i'll, I'll make sure that i get a workout in mm -hmm. if i if i go is particularly stressful and i felt like you know so i guess the i guess it's better if i back up and say if i go on a call and i'm excited and then I fight a fire or I run up stairs at full speed and carrying all my tools. And then I run down a hallway and I find out there's nothing going on. I've actually used up a fair amount of that energy. That wouldn't be something that I feel like I have to myself after. I'm going to be like trying to recover. I'm going to catch my breath. I'm going to walk back to the rig and put my tools away and stuff. But if I go on a call and I feel like I've had that upper limit of excitement lit yeah, and then it was, then when I get back to the firehouse, I'm going to do some kind of cardio, whether it's, you know, walk three laps around the whole firehouse facility, or I'm going to go in the gym and do a quick uh, 10, 15 call. I'm going to try to get myself out of breath. Yeah, because getting out of breath moves all those metabolites and sends them back, uses some of them up. It lets you put them back into circulation instead of just letting them where they are without uh, you kind of partitioning or putting them away. Yeah, that's and that's an interesting concept. So in a way, what you're saying is that that spike of adrenaline, but in a way also is energy, you're going to of energy in a way like lightning you direct it in a way instead of just getting a cup of coffee or something else what you maybe did in the past and i think the other pattern that i hear you saying i think that's such a valuable lesson for everybody that of course you need it for your work to have that spike of adrenaline but you can also notice it more and have more awareness of it and choose more in it but what i hear you say is that you use the connection with your body more to come yes. back to, let's say, the, then only the you know, the firefighter put on the knees that's ready for whatever comes up or way, right? Yeah, I would say like the surge is the catalyst. It's the fuel. It's the idea that you have a tank and now all of a sudden it's fuel is just being fired into your system. And if you don't use it up, you just flooded your engine. Now you can't even get it to start, you know? And, and, and over time, that's a terrible toll. All of the stresses in life yeah. are like that. To me. That's 
what I bring home sometimes as I've learned about this is that sometimes real life stresses me out or my, when I say real life, like my not firehouse. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, that sounded weird. But my, my home life, my regular life outside of work, sometimes I go and do my cardio or do some sauna time or some cold exposure because I'm stressed out at home. Recognizing that probably everybody has it, has unique stresses at work absolutely that they should really be using up at some point during their day yeah just like a housewife with all the stresses of or whatever needs to have an outlet to use that stress it's all everybody has those surges everybody has that yeah um, but i think what is interesting with what you do you see first of all you need adrenaline you need stress because uh, yeah yeah Yeah. it's the only reason i can do my job because if you just said denise go swing the axe you know and i'm just like all right daniel asked me to do this on camera i'm gonna swing the axe right now maybe i could do it 40 times in in rapid succession really like you Mm -hmm. it'd be impressive for you to watch yeah but if you could be a mouse in my pocket or on my shoulder when i'm in a fire yeah then you really see what I'm capable of yeah. when I on that adrenaline, when I'm surging and I've got the power that says that, Daniel, I'm going to pick you up and throw you over my shoulder and, and actually jog out the front door. And that's what I'm, I'm capable of doing that. Yeah. But so, right now, maybe not so much. <laughs> you know, like at this moment, without the adrenaline, I'm just a regular person. You know. Yeah, but 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 that's so fascinating because work-wise, you need it to to use it to do your job in in a proper way. You know. But at the same time, at the beginning, or even for a long period of time, you didn't learn to manage that functional stress paid that yes. price and now by and i think i want to sum that up by doing using strategies to first of all connect more to yourself when you come back by doing the cardio uh, going doing hit workout elliptical trainer sauna cold showering those kinds of things they all bring you back to yeah, denise in in general and you say also that stress is contextual Functionally, it's really helpful in your work, but when you're at home, you also experience stress just like every other. Do you have a ritual in a way that helps you transition from going out of the firehouse and going back to, let's say, house, Denise? Is there, now by asking you this, what what is it that comes up in your mind if I ask for Yeah, you know, I uh, refer to my home as my wellness center. Mm. Wow. And, and I, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding around. I really, I, yeah. I swear that is what I call it. And I could go back 22 years. I would have wanted to call my home a wellness center. Yeah. I sleep a terrible sleep schedule when I'm at work. Yeah. So when I'm at home, I sleep yeah. I sleep on a bed that has a cooling mattress so that I sleep at about 62 degrees. Yeah. That cold uh, helps me to sleep and get more deep sleep. And it keeps me from waking up in the middle of the night. 
if I do wake up in the middle of the night, I go downstairs, I sit in the hot tub 10 minutes, then I go back up, I get right back in my bed and I fall right back asleep. So I just recreate, recreate that temperature drop that makes sleep. So I do better sleep management. I, I immerse myself in the beauty of sleep at home. Wow. I sit in my sauna for 45 minutes every day that I'm at home. I wake up in the morning and I drink that cup of coffee because I do love coffee. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I, have that, I have that coffee in my hot tub. Oh, you know? wow. uh, I have during COVID, I was, I used to go to the gym three or four days a week. COVID started. Now I can't go to the gym anymore. I built a complete gym in my garage. Wow. My car doesn't get to park in the garage anymore. I go in my garage and I use my garage. It's a wellness center. I'm not kidding around. And these things all really make me feel like as much as I go to work and I put on a uniform and feel like, all right, I just put my Superman suit on, you know, or my one. Really? Yeah, she's super, <laughs> super home. Yeah, right? right. Let me get my better image on. Of know? course. Uh, I put on my Wonder Woman outfit and I hop onto the fire engine and I'm I'm the master of my universe. Yeah. And when I come and I come out of that, I am the master of my universe. Wow. So in a way to, to recap that, because in everything you do, there are wonderful lessons to be learned. The transition for you in a way to Wonder Woman going back home is first of all, you call it your wellness center. And by just calling it your wellness center, the way how you experience your home as a wellness center gives you a totally impact on your neurology. Then you have the strategies over there for better sleep management, relaxation, connecting with your body again. But then when you go back to the firehouse, in a way, the trigger is putting on your fire suit and be and so in a way you have coaching wise, I would call it, you have anchors and your anchor to be at home is your wellness center, the wording and the, the rituals and on your work. It's probably the alarm bell that goes off and putting on your suit and you're ready to go. Yeah. And it's trusting that I have just fully recovered with four days of beautiful sleep and exercise <laughs> and everything. Yeah. And so when I go to work, I don't see work taking the time at one time. No. Now, when I go to work, I think I'm ready to, I'm ready to go to work. Yeah. I'm not, uh, sometimes I would go home and I would be having bad nights of sleep or I wouldn't feel as recovered and maybe only have 24 hours off. And I would think I'm still tired. I'm not going to get any sleep now. Or, you know, like you would, I wouldn't see it as that I was prepared to go back to work. Whereas now I feel like I'm prepared to go back to work. I wish I had that in the first 15 years. I think that also comes back to uh, what you told me before we went on this recording. And I think it's relatable for so many people is that the context is a little bit different, but your is being there for others, rescuing other people when they yeah. are at their worst but what I hear you saying, what we talked about before is by these strategies, in a way, you learned to rescue yourself 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I read, I really think that that is just the most poignant summary of what my wellness center represents. I, I think when I met you, I, I was going to be forced to retire. My knees were killing me. I was in a lot of physical pain and I didn't know if I could go on. And I thought uh, I may be forced to retire but just because I couldn't over that my body was kind of, <laughs> it just hadn't been cared for uh, in, in the right ways. I'm not always pain-free now, but I live 90% of my life without pain. And wow. when something comes up, deal with it. It's huge because I love my job. And I think if I had had to stop doing it four years ago, yeah, that would have been worst case scenario for me. Uh, it would have felt like a failure, you know, like that I was falling. You know, you look at your peers, you know, I look at other women who are my age and there's not a lot of women like me around to, to say, Oh, I want to be like her. Aging takes a toll. It's, it's yeah. physical degradation, you know, really fought to keep myself physically ready and physically able and capable. I'm never going to be able to rest on my laurels and say that I can take all this for granted. But that was for the first 15 years of my career is I just took it all for granted. What I hear you say, Denise, is in a way you created that beautiful transition between being Wonder Woman at work and at home, being in a wellness center, working a lot on the physical, connect better with yourself, mostly for the adrenaline part. But of course, this is being fueled by a different perception of your work, of yourself within the work, how you see yourself as a woman. So shift you make on an emotional level instead of only the physical level because or they're all integrated with each other. What would you say is different in your perception, how you look at your work, your life, taking care of yourself? So I think a big part of what I did when I, when I started really strategizing my body is I was a seeking, you know, mm. I was seeking answers. Yeah. I watched podcasts and breathing exercise, you know, anything that might reduce my pain and inflammation, right? So I started doing these very physically oriented things, cold exposure or sauna or the breathing, uh, all of these different. But as I went along, I really think that the surprise was that I was going to have to deal with my emotion and right. my psychological health. You know, you're looking at me, I'm broad. <laughs> Absolutely. Very, you know, you know, a lot of my job I can take for granted physically being responsive to it. Yeah. But I couldn't take my emotional health for granted. Mm. And as a child, I PTSD, mm. very traumatic childhood, very abusive childhood. Well, that PTSD is I, I hate to say it, but it, it almost gives you a, a strength. Yeah, absolutely. For resilience, you know? Yeah. And so it, it really helped me with my job. But then my job became PTSD at different, you know, different things were like experiencing PTSD again, you yeah. know? 
guy declaring people dead, the horror of a fire in a burned body, you know, the witnessing the worst day of someone's life over and over and over again, 22 years, you know, that up a lot of emotion and psychological kind of the need to deal with the trauma. Yeah. And I sat in therapy and people can therapize and sit in therapy endlessly talking, <laughs> about, yeah. talking, talking. And then he did this to me and then they hit me or did, you know, I mean, it all just is you just kind of regurgitating why you think you're a piece of shit yeah. or why you don't trust your inner voice or have solid relationships with other people because you can't bring yourself to meet yeah. and feel worthy or lovable or whatever, you know, these are all my, I'm saying things that are, yeah. uh, I'm generalizing too. And so really what I had to do is find a way to trust myself. Mm. And so I did EMDR. It was a light therapy where it really ended up using the light. I literally drove away from that first experience thinking, wow, I'm worthy. The best description of it is that if I had a, a little green plant growing out of the top of my head and it was a weed and it was negative voice and all the bad PTSD stuff, if, if this was my PTSD plant, all the times that I in life I tried to pull it out before it just broke off like that crappy weed in your front yard that just again, you know, yeah. and this was like having all those roots that are fingered into my brain, just having somebody go pull it out and having all of those roots come out and having the space that remains. Yeah. Having the opportunity to recreate my responses, to listen for my voice. So I became more thoughtful. So the EMDR is just really in the last two years. So I'll back. so when I met you mm -hmm. and I started really addressing my physical self, yeah, I started becoming more thoughtful yeah. and I had to kind of put away the negativity thrived on that was a self dialogue. Yeah. I had to put that away and allow myself to be good. Yeah. At some and I had to acknowledge that well, I'm actually good at my job. Good at lifting weights. And I'm good at doing this breathing exercise. And I'm good at doing. And then I started listening better. And and these are things that kind of, you know, one domino is the next domino. So it became easier. Like if I had tried to just start with the emotional stuff that never worked for me before. I fully understand that. Yeah. And so by, by first addressing my, it gave me a way to reach inside and acknowledge my inner child, that inner voice. Yeah. And a good dog is a tired dog. And so <laughs> I think how I came around to myself is when I'm good and tired, and then I look inside. I I'm have a more forgiving, kind voice. Yeah. You know, a lot of what I started to think about was when I show up at your emergency, I give you my 
tell you, you're going to make it. I got you. You know, we're doing our best to save you. And I thought, why don't I bring that to my own life? Why is that such a foreign to internalize that and to own that? And it, it's real easy to own the physical stuff because I'm such a physically driven person. Yeah. I would have said a hundred times over, oh, I'm not a spiritual person, you know, like grip it. It's <laughs> if not, I can feel you know, it in my body, real. if I'm not sweating, then it's not working. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. You know? That's for that's that fluff isn't going to help me when I'm going through this, you know? Yeah. But what I have found is that when I have, voice and when i start thinking about myself more positively yeah i actually do better in the gym yeah and i actually do better sleeping i have a quieter mind when i the have down the street his name's jd and he's four years old and he comes down here and he rings my doorbell drives me a little crazy you know (laughs) a nice stressor you know in in the best way right and so i remember to the door recently and thinking he's rung my doorbell three times today you know and i opened up the door and i like i i got down on his level because i really try to listen to him talk you know i got down on his level and i leaned in and he goes denise yes jd and he says I just wanted to tell you, I love you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that was me. You know, it was like, I showed up to me one day yeah. and I opened that inner soul spirit world, this world that is within me where you live, yeah. where all the people who matter to me reside. Thank and you. I opened that door up with that Denise you know, and I'm like, I just want to tell you I love you. Yeah. And that, I feel emotional talking about it now. It's so real. Yeah. So, and it's found, I, I didn't even know how cool it was going to be. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that because you... Uh, in a way, you're the modern day hero, right? Wonder Woman <laughs> saving people's lives. I know, right? But, but, but I want to sum that up for the people is that having a background, a childhood with PTSD, uh, you thrived in a way on the adrenaline because in a way it works like a drug. You don't have to feel yourself that much because you feel invincible. Did that for such a long period until everything inside of you say, hey, this isn't sustainable anymore. Something needs to change. So you yes. started to work yeah. on the physical yeah. side with, with breathing, cold exposure, all those wonderful modalities. And that allows you to shift the side and in a way truly embracing the superwoman in you when you're in your wellness center or when you're in the firehouse, right? Yeah, yeah. And in all of my interactions, that the conversation we're having today is so different than the conversations that we were having four years ago. I, I fully get what oh, you're yeah. saying. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different. And one word that resonated with me also is, and that's, uh, I, I, you went through that to start with the physical and a lot of people need that physical part to us, uh, let's say the back door to get into the soul or whatever you want to call yeah. it. It is not spiritual. It, I call it, it's literally high performance because it is, uh, you, you've proven to yourself 
performance is, but not sustainable yeah. high performance. And you use the back door to get first the physical modalities in, then go into the emotional to create sustain yeah. sustainable yeah. high performance for yourself. And I think that is acceptance is that last part that is something so many people are struggling with that uh, you got all the recognition already for probably 15 years, being that a hero, being there on that fire, uh, save people, but without accepting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You were not saving yourself until that point, probably. Absolutely true. Yeah. Wonderful. With all the. I know, right? It's like. <laughs> I mean, we talk about it and I think, wow, I would. We couldn't have, like, we couldn't sit and have this conversation 15 years ago. You know, I, it's, it, the word is evolved. Yeah. That I have evolved to have the capacity to be here now, yeah. you know? And, and, uh, and, and, and that's something I always teach or share with people is that we probably, if we would have met 10 years ago, I could share the same knowledge if I could do today without, of course, my own involvement in things, but then you probably never, let's say, integrated that into your life because the pain wasn't at that moment graded. It's that pivotal point in your life to switch first to the physical and then the emotional side and then the acceptance side of you. Yeah. I didn't have the understanding. And the thing, the thing is, is a lot, when you think about that adrenaline state and that state, this isn't a state where you want to make financial decisions about your retirement. This is a state where you just want to survive. You uh, just want to uh, come out of it alive. Uh, you want to accomplish and then get out. You, you want to be in and be out of this. But you're alive then, you know, you're engaged. It's if you get too attached to that moment, you know, that that sense, you're you're going to pay that price. But the listening, you know, I would say that if I had a word that really would say that since COVID started and I've really been, you know, just home listening to that voice, I may have known that I was listening. I may have started listening to that voice over the last few years. But now I listen to people, yeah. to other, the other people, and I listen with empathy and understanding yeah. because of where I am now and I have learned, you know, because of my evolution, because of how I have evolved. And the thing is, is it's like something that drag continues to drag me forward. Of course. You know, yeah. is that tell something to my inner child at this moment about what do I have to look forward to is that I am just, this is just beginning. You know, I have only just <laughs> these small moments of self are just really, I have my whole life ahead of me. Yeah. You know, uh, if I'm capable of finding this out at this point in life, yeah. I have a lot to look forward to. So well, that's what I mean with that sustainability because that adrenaline works for, let's say, in your case, 15 years, um, yeah. even in extreme conditions, but eventually you pay the price. I'm also interested, 
to where you are now in your life, uh, Denise. And I think when I hear you talk, you were doing just now, it feels like I have a really young lady that is full of life in, in front of me. Um, That's fact. <laughs> that's true. Right? Um, but concept we spoke about earlier, are like courage, trust, and fear. How yeah. has your relationship changed to that by, hey, when you went through the process of accepting yourself more, I can imagine where fear and courage and trusting yourself has changed. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Part of the PTSD made fear a uh, very, fear was right here. It yeah. consumed all of my worldview, all visions in my worldview, financial, every, I mean, you name it, relationships, you know, If I say this, I'm afraid she won't like me. If I say this, I'm afraid it, that I won't, I won't be successful. Or, you know, that I'm, if I don't uh, work harder or get stronger, I'm going to die at a fire. You know, having a coworker die in an accident at a fire, you know, or on a, at a training. Uh, you know, all of a sudden I was like, what? I could die training? And, you know, it's like, oh, here it is. It's living right here, you know. So that's like kind of how big it is. But then we just go to my job and we say, okay, now I've got to, I've got to rein this fear in when I'm, when I know I'm going to a fire. I'm on the way to the fire and I'm listening on my headset and we're all talking. We're kind of making our game plan. We're thinking, right? And then we hear on the radio, engine one on scene, working fire. Yeah. You're like, Oh, now I, now I don't just think it might be a fire. Mm. Now I know I'm going to a fire and that fear, you just chuck the fear out the window. Now adrenaline has overwhelmed that sense of fear. Yeah. And now you feel like, all right, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And that's your courage talking. That's your will to uh, dominate and win is you have the courage to whatever this fear is, you're going to face it. And you're not thinking, I'm going to face this and see what happens. <laughs> you know, I'm going to face this and I'm probably going to get a medal for this later. You know, somebody, <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to be the greatest, you know, firefighter today that ever, you know, like no matter what you walk into, like the doom slayer of fire and that when you think about fear and courage, they're so closely tied, they're melded with trust. Yeah. And that, is what you build up over time in your relationship with yourself and your talk with yourself and your talk with your brotherhood and your talk at drills and training, you know? And then experientially, uh, you're like, oh yeah, this is just like that four-story building that I went to at the fire when I went five years ago. You know, like you're thinking about another fire you went to that was a four-story type, mm. you know, you're thinking, oh, going to be a lot of stairs, going to be, we're going to have to cut a hole in the roof and there's going to be, you know, these kind of entrances and you're just, in your mind, you're really out here and thinking in 3D, yeah. you know, 
it's uh, you're visualizing it like any good athlete. Yeah. Visual visualizes that perfect basketball shot or visualizes what it's like to lift this weight off the floor, you know, and happening. And that is when you're actually enmeshing your real experience with your imagined powers. Yeah. And your your imagined power is than your actual power. Yeah. (laughs) because in in 30 minutes you're going to be tired you know and (laughs) there's still going to be work to be done you know there's still going to be more fire or burn you know there's things we do after the fire that are work uh you take all the burned products out of uh out of the room you know you you help them clean up a little bit yeah it's it's a process and it's what, what I hear you say strategic wise, and I was looking for the patterns, what you're saying is that one thing when it comes to dealing with fear is always a little bit like a chicken and the egg story because you need experience to build trust to better, in a way, deal with fear. And that experience creates trust and trust gives courage and that helps you better to deal with fear. So that's one part of the equation that you experience yourself by like, hey, you've all those years of experience. But by doing the work on yourself, first physically, then emotionally, you started to accept yourself more. And in a way that was even the added glue between uh, fear and courage for yourself and also the trust, not you only you have acceptance, but also the trust and acceptance of your teammates, that brotherhood that is there, right? Yes, yes. When I met you, it was right after the Asiana plane crash in, at San Francisco International. Yeah. And when I responded to that crash, we were all on the headsets and we were all talking to each other. And I saw my role as kind of important at that moment because I was the paramedic. Mm-hmm. I saw my role as being kind of important that I should say something to help everybody kind of calm down a little bit because we are all imagining body parts and, you know, the horror of a plane crash, you know, just you imagine, I mean, it's the worst case scenario. And, you know, you're just imagining a plane cartwheeling down, throwing bodies and burning fuel fires on, you know, all that. And I said in my headset, I said, you know, what we see here at this call, we're all leaving together and we're going to, we're going to get this done and it's going to be okay. You know, it was kind of that, that sense of saying to your, to your cohort in and you're all going to do the countdown three, two, one team, you know, and then that whole kind of sense. Well, when you talked about the glue just now, what I was thinking about is you can have the team talk. You're having it inside too. Yeah. You're saying, I got you. Yeah. I've got the experience. I've been to a fire, you know, I've been to countless fires. I've seen many dead people. It's getting to where you say, this is their worst day and I'm bringing my best self. Wow. And that knowing that what's really trans really changed for me over the last five, six years in my job has been 
I have that conversation inside with me. I have it outside with other people because I support. We talked about, you said support, you know, I support my brotherhood. We rely on each other to talk about this, order it because it's chaos and we've dealt with chaos and then we have to figure out how to put it away. You know, how do we, how do we live with what we've seen? How do we have lunch after that? How do we eat dinner at call where you saw all that? The thing is, is that when, when you enmesh that and you say, Hey, things are really bad. It was chaotic. It was horrifying. It was scary. It made me afraid. It made me uh, want to turn away. And I made myself keep looking. Then you end up having that conversation with yourself afterwards. I did a great job. That was the hardest call I ever went on. Yeah. That was, you acknowledge that that made me reach to my toes for everything that I had. Be present and not look away or run away or turn away or shut down and not be emotionally connected. We've talked a lot about fire, but there's been so many times when I've looked at someone and, you know, kind of the mantra is you don't want to become part of the problem, mm-hmm. right? And I've looked at someone and they're sobbing and they've just, their, their mom's dead or dead. And I am the person, and this is, I'm unique in my cohort, in my brotherhood, I'm unique because many of my brotherhood cannot deal with the emotion of, of someone crying. And not everyone has empathy at my job. Some people are just brave. Some people are physically, you know, we all bring our individual strengths. Yeah. And one of with my resilience is empathy. And so when, uh, when I have been at that call where I am witnessing someone's uh, grief and loss, I am the one up. You know, I just try to step in and be present and say what I feel would support them. And I say, this is how, what happened here. We did CPR. We breathed for them. We did the chest compression. We did the work of their heart. We did the work of their lungs. And we did everything we could. We used all the medicines that were available. And they died. And I'm terribly and And they cry and they weep. And then I cry, yeah. you know. And, and I'm not going to stand there and sob and become part of the problem. But you have the empathy I, to deal, uh, you feel that situation, right? Exactly. Yeah. But I start, the tears will flow. Of course. You know? Yeah. And I think that that's the honoring that this is a real moment that we are sharing as a human that we are sharing and be, that I'm empathetic to. You know, as much as I could save a life, I could see a life end, you know, yeah. uh, so much of the time I have feel like I am a catalyst and a person 
someone begin the journey of grieving Mm -hmm. and that I want to direct them gently forward, you know, to say, if you want to hold his hand, it's okay. You know, take as long as you need. Yeah. And and, and thing comes up. I'm sorry. I'm getting also a little bit emotional. I know it's, it's huge. Yeah. Um, we don't think about this stuff all the time. No, so. you see mostly in the movies there the 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 hero stuff, but and then scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I'm thinking about you've been with so many people on their last few minutes or seconds of their life and so many people of dying. And yeah. you being such in a way close guide when people transition from life to to death what is the biggest lessons you learned from yourself about that's you know gosh we have all this personal growth and up to about age 30 i never imagined uh, that i'd live to be 30 and then i had to face the fact that i was i could die anytime you know kind of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. at work. But I was, because of my history, I was very much a um, very suicidal for about years of my life. Maybe a little, even a little bit more than that. I thought about suicide daily, Mm -hmm. that the world was such a harsh place and life had been so hard that it was just a part of my ruminative thought would circle on and at some point i have learned enough from watching other people's lives end that i can see you know i would say my son pulled me out of that hole i announced to my son he was having some depressive time and i wanted him to understand that that was a real human place to be you know that it wasn't abnormal to have suicidal thoughts that these are thoughts and throw the baby out with the bathwater, just understand that they're just thoughts that we don't act on. The having a plan or, you know, that, that that's when it becomes dangerous. And so I said that to him, you know, hey, it's more thought about killing myself, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said this to him and he looked at me and he says, well, if you ever kill yourself, I'm gone the next day. And I had, I had to like, uh, that just blasted me. That was right, you know, right into the chest and a you know, second one into the face. It was like, wow, whole world uh, hat flips and you then think I can never kill myself, <laughs> you know, period. You know, I have to live, you know, yeah. and even if I'm living for all the wrong reasons, I just lived for him for a while. Mm. And then to get more to your question of how it relates to what I've gleaned from being present and being close to death. It's created in me a wanting to live Mm. in a different way than I was really capable of experiencing it before because of kind of my historical trauma. And when listening, it's like listening to myself face a fear. We can plan for every event. You know, I have my estate w- written. My, I have a life insurance policy for my son because I don't want to worry about him being left alone, you know. 
you know, we do all these things and we plan for every event yeah. or every possibility, but it's completely unknown. And I have watched, I watched a woman my age walk off a plane, short of breath, saying to me, you know, I can't breathe. I think I'm dying and I, I can't breathe. 30 minutes later, she was dead. And I was trying to calm her and trying to help her up to her, up to her, up to the moment when she died. And being a witness is wanting to lean fully into their experience to help. Yeah. Knowing that uh, you're powerless. You only have tools in your toolbox. You only, have, you only bring you. You're not a god. You're not all-powerful. If this is their day to die, this is it. This is their life to look. But it makes me look at my life in a completely different way. Because I want a life to look back on. And I've has I have this conversation with myself oftentimes where I might think, I'm glad I had a chance to have this thought. I'm glad I made it to this experience, you know, my son's wedding. Glad I made it to this moment where I'm actualized this much, yeah. you know, where I have opened the door and talked to my little girl, where I have had the chance to say, Daniel, so were all of my friends, you know. I am worth it. You know? So what I hear you say, Denise, is that the gift those people gave you is the fire with and accepting that it can be over tomorrow. So the, li the life you have left to live it in the fullest. I have seen so many people die. Yeah. And, and I have declared people dead that I absolutely know that it happens without warning. Yeah. It's today, it's tomorrow, it's when you're 90. Stand in the room of a, of a 90 plus year old person and you think they had a long life. They had a lot of living and a lot of experiences and you see the of their kids and their memories and and those people you think yeah you did it and now you've crossed over you know yeah and the horrible ones are the ones where young and they've just been snatched from life yeah and i'll share a couple calls you know where where a young man had been struck by a car and it was a car who was, so it, this car was going as fast as it could mm -hmm. on city streets. And this guy was in a crosswalk on a green light. He, he had the right of way. He was living his life. Yeah. 
And that car hit him and knocked him right out of his shoes. You know, his shoes are in the crosswalk. Wow. And his body is 40 yards up the street. And he is. Nobody died quicker. He didn't have any last thoughts. He didn't see it coming. And then his life ended. And I ran up to that guy and I looked at him and I, there are things that we know when someone's dead, you know, certain, it really doesn't even matter if they still have a pulse because it's such a, you know, you, you get there within one or two minutes and their heart may still be beating, but it's because that's what its job was. And it doesn't stop until it runs out of everything that it runs on. The brain isn't telling it to beat anymore. It's just beating because last few seconds it has that. Yeah. And, and so this person is dead. You're looking at him and you're like, there's nothing I can do here. And I looked at him and then the scenario was that two other people kind of get started, but we needed to find out what the heck happened. Yeah. So one person always pulls back and you find out what happened because we're just pulling up. We don't really know what happened. I know until I told you the story because I know it now. And I turn around and I walk to the, to the sidewalk and I'm looking at this guy and I'm looking back. I looked back and then I looked at the guy and the first thing the cop says to me, the cops always whisper and they're always giving you the, this is the brother and this is the wife and this is what happened. You know, like they'll give you like that. Take some 10 seconds. They whisper it out at high speed. It's because they're trying to save you from to see because Mm -hmm. what they heard, they can't even believe. And uh, it's always shocking. So I'm looking at the guy on the sidewalk while this guy's while the cop is whispering in my ear that two twin brothers, one was walking out in front of the other alone and the, bro- the other brother and his girlfriend were walking behind him. So he got hit by the car and the twin brother and the girlfriend are now standing on the sidewalk. Wow. You're connecting these dots and you're just saying, I, I have no words. The memory leaves me as dumbfounded and dumbstruck as I was at that moment. You know, there's, there's nothing, there's no preparation. There's nothing. No, it like, just happens that's, in a way. That's how fleeting life is. Who it picks and chooses and when it ends, is just so random. I always love to focus on two sides. So one of the most, uh, we talk about death, what you've learned from death how random it can be and in a way the gift that you got by being with people in the last moments of life. You also, of course, have other side of it that it's a really close call and you probably have one of your most beautiful moments of life. Do you have a, a situation that in a way represents life for me when you think that let's like say one situation that stands out above some of the others you mean a a a work call that that represents life well delivering a baby i mean you know we all it's like thank god i didn't get through 22 
entire service without delivering a baby. Yeah. And and you, was, you had that in, in a, let's say, in a special situation that something like that happened that you were like in the middle of nowhere? Do you have a story, something like that? Talked about uh, dying and let's focus on living for a second. So I have delivered a baby at work, which yeah. was a wonderful thing. Wow. But uh, it was really funny because I work in San Francisco, but I live, which is north of San Francisco by about an hour. Mm. And it's all uh, wine country and some sprawling kind of farmland with cows. And, you know, you see it all on the way home. You know, it's the city and you move closer part, and then eventually it becomes, you know, vineyards and wineries, you yeah. know? So there was this thing that was happening as I would come home from work, there'd be an animal rescue. And it was hilarious because I'm a super... I, there was a cow that was terrified and traffic wasn't slowing down for it, but it had gotten out of its pasture somehow. And so I like saw this cow like panicking and you could see it turn to go towards the roadway. And then I don't know if cars were honking, you know, or whatever, but it, then it would turn to go back. And so I drove right past that cow and got ahead of it enough. And then I stopped my car and I jumped out. I saw that there was a gate, you know, and with a padlock on it. And I started kicking this. I had my uniform still on, so lucky boots, right? And I started kicking this padlock on the gate. And I literally kicked this padlock. Opened the gate. The cow runs into the pasture. And then I shut the gate. Yeah. And then this truck pulls up and it's the farmers or whatever the ranch guys you know Mm -hmm. and they're like wow good job you know i'm like sorry about your luck you know to me that was psychologically like the coolest thing that could have ever happened (laughs) because it wasn't a human emergency and i saved an animal perfect you know and then i'm i'm driving home on a different day and I see these horses just trotting across the road and they're not clearly they're alone. And I'm like, this is a problem. And I noticed where they were coming out of. And so I pulled my car over right to the driveway and I ran in the gate and I shouted, Hey, Hey, you know, is anybody home? And this guy leans out and I said, your horses are out. And he's like, Oh my God. It's a panic. Right. And I said, I said, do you have, you know, halters and he go get them. And I start running after the horses, you know, all I had to do is kind of just move my energy to calm them. I got two of them to just like stop right there. And he got a hold of them, you know, and got halters on them. And then one was just, one just took off. And so here I am again, of course, I'm on my way home from work and I'm in my boots and I'm just hauling ass. You know, and it's running down one, you know, row of grapes and I'm running down like three rows of grapes next to it. And I can see it like, look over at me. I'm like running as fast as I can. And, you know, and then it just really takes off. And I'm like, going, oh, man, you know, I can't give anymore, you know, and I get to the end of the of the uh, run of grapes and I just 
made myself into a giant X, you know? And I was like, ah, you know? And the horse just stopped. And then it turned around and it started trotting back down. And that's, he walked right into his dad. It had a stressful day at work. This was one of those days where I had no stress anymore. It was that feel good, brilliant moment of, you know, with animals, they're so helpless, you know, they're so at our, they so rely on us to be beings and keepers, you know? And so this was, these are two occasions when I felt like a hero, yeah, wow. you know, where I put on the, I'm a hero moment. I say the cavalier thing, like I couldn't have done, it. you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's like not everybody pulls over and helps, you know, like, but that's me, you know? And when I do it outside of work and I do it uh, for animals, it's feels, it feels like, it feels like this is who I am. This is who I was meant to be. So so in another life, you would be Wonder Woman, but then for animals. uh, Well, I mean, really, come on. Wonder Woman would have saved it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So wonderful. Denise, I have one last question for you uh, with, I don't know if I already did it when we met in Poland, but I always talk about that we all are legends and there's a legacy that is inside of us. It's already a little bit about that legacy that is coming out from you more and more. If this would be the last few days of your life, what is that legacy that you want to leave behind that you want to share that people would remember you by? Inspiration. I would want to know that, that I would inspire someone to, to really engage whatever it costs, whatever, whatever you have to do. I would say, go ahead, use me as an example. Tell my worst stories, you know, uh, know that it's, it isn't over until it's over that you always can change inspiration. I want people who have been fat to know that you could lose the weight and keep it off, that you can be so depressed that you want to take your own life, but you can live with purpose and a tenacity that you'd never, you'd never let it go willingly. Wow. That you, that you would then turn around and say that, for all the times that I have inspired you, go and inspire. Yeah. We all have that legacy, right? That's when you inspire someone and that's, that in a way, that's what I feel with that, that legacy that you now share with me and the people that are watching this, it inspires them and they, in a way it's for inspiration to others also. You have, you have absolutely, we talked about at the beginning. I mean, it's appropriate to talk about it at the end that, You know, when you contextually look at everything we've discussed, you know, your part in my journey, people take and you inspired me, you know, you were a voice for me and I can still recall that voice. I get to be inspired by you until I die. And because you do, I do, I do too. And You know, people who you inspire, they may not inspire someone tomorrow. No. But but at some point, five years from now, you know, 
started this because I think, well, what is this whole video about? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay. And we sat and we had this dialogue and I think, I hope that someone gets something out of this conversation. Here, and I think what you're saying, it is really the, that I hope it's, there's, an, there's a natural movement in life that in a way I met you when you felt the pain most in your life that it was really time for change and that we close this loop and we have a relationship also in the future, but we close this loop by having this conversation here for me tonight and share your experience about life, death, courage, trust, growth with the rest of the world and everybody that is seeing this. So I would like to thank you so much, Denise. And um, hey, you shared I'm an inspiration for you, but you're an inspiration for me. And I know that the people that watch this, they will be inspired by your story. So, Thank you, Daniel. Thank I you very much. So what a wonderful insights from Denise. And of course, she's out there every day in extreme situations. But if we translate this into everyday life, running your business, being a high performer, being an athlete... What is the one thing that you should implement based on this conversation? Just share it with me on social media. I'm really curious. Because if Denise can create change in her life, then it must be possible for you too. Thank you for joining us. If you don't want to miss an episode of Exit the Red Race, make sure to subscribe. Are you listening through Apple Podcasts? We'd love you to leave a review. Do you know someone who really should hear this episode? Share it in your favorite social media so you can tag them. Oh, and don't forget to tag Daniel as well. Want to know more about Daniel Kluke? Check out his website at danielkluke.com. Are you ready to live your legend? See you next time. Exit the rat race.